So I have a title today's message, uh, God's No Strings Policy. You'll know more about what that means here in just a little bit. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last weekend. We're in Acts chapter 10. We, we finished talking about Cornelius, this, this captain in the Italian uh, army had this angelic visitation. He was a good man, a godly man, but he wasn't a Christian yet. And he needed to hear the gospel message so that he could receive it and be saved. So an angel appeared to him and told him how to get a hold of a guy by the name of Peter, who was a, gen- who was a Jew, and he was one of the apostles of the Lord. And simultaneously, Peter has this vision from heaven with a big sheet coming down filled with animals, and, and God was using this to begin to change his heart about how God loves everyone the same, no strings attached. And so we're going to pick up where we left off, but th- the theme of today is going to be based on one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, which we'll go to in a little bit here, and it's about favoritism, that God has no favorites, that God loves us impartially. So I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But did you grow up in a home where there was favoritism, where one of your parents maybe favored a sibling uh, above you? You know, favoritism can really disrupt a family. Even in the Bible, uh, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Isaac favored Esau because he was a hunter. And Rebekah favored Jacob because he was more like a mama's boy. He enjoyed being in the kitchen with his mom. Nothing wrong with that, you know, learning how to cook. He enjoyed helping his mom fold laundry. No, no, no problem with that. But they favored one son above the other, and it creates a rivalry between the two sons. Even in Jacob, Jacob's life later on, he had 12 sons. He had two sons from his favorite wife, Rachel, uh, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, he favored them above the rest of his sons, which created tension, which created jealousy, which created envy. And so we know favoritism isn't a good thing. I think the the greatest example in uh, the world of fairy tales is the story of Cinderella and how her father dies. And so she was raised by her evil stepmother and her evil stepsisters and how they mistreated her. And she was not the one that was favored. But she was ultimately favored by the prince. Oh, what a happy story. Oh, it's heartwarming. Um, sometimes in our place of employment, there can be favoritism, right? Some are treated unfairly or not as favored. Even the TV sitcom, The Office, you know, the boss, Michael Scott, he blatantly is biased uh, uh, against Toby, who ironically is the head of human resource. Uh, and yet, he shows great favor to Dwight. And Dwight can like burn down the whole office complex and he, he shows uh, favor to him. So favoritism is a, is a real challenge um, in, in our world and in relationships and in families. But here's the beautiful thing is that God, he loves us with no strings attached. You don't have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, or be from a certain part of the world in order to know that God loves you. So that's going to be the big thought today. So go with me to Acts chapter 10 verse 24. We're going to pick up right where we left off from last week. It says they arrived in Caesarea, Peter and and his crew. The following day Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So you know the story. Cornelius has this angelic visitation. Peter has this vision. Their paths are going to cross. Cornelius is living in Caesarea. Peter was staying in Joppa, about a 31 mile difference. So it took about 10 hours on foot all day to travel from Joppa to Caesarea. 
So from the time that Cornelius had this angelic visitation to how to get and get and hear the gospel to the time that Peter arrives, the turnaround time is about four days. So the question that has to be asked is, what did Cornelius do with his downtime? Between the time of an angel visited him and the time Peter arrives to his home to preach the gospel, what was Cornelius doing? He was getting things prepared. He was getting things ready. He was sending out the invitations to his family and his friends to pack as many people into his home as he possibly could. Why? Because the rock star, Peter, was on his way. Peter, who walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Peter, who was a, an eyewitness of the miracles of Jesus. Peter, who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord and Savior. Peter, who after the ascension of Christ was released into ministry and by his very shadow in the book of Acts, people were healed by Peter's shadow. Peter, by his very words when he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. A lame man stood up, began to leap and jump for joy and was miraculously healed. Peter, who raised people from the dead. This Peter was coming to Cornelius' house and he had like several days to prepare to welcome the word of God, to welcome the gospel, and to welcome the man of God into his home. You know, there's a lesson we can learn from Cornelius. We need to prepare ourselves to receive the Word of God in our life, to welcome the Word of God into our homes, to welcome great men and great women of God into our lives, as Kate in the video talked about those who have mentored him, not only his grandparents, but others along the way for him to become the man that he is becoming. So we need to prepare ourselves to receive the Word of God. So I have a question for you. How do you prepare for church on Sunday? I hope... On Thursday, you have a reminder in your schedule that repeats every week. Thursday is prep day for church on Sunday. I need to begin to get in the emotional, mental groove of being in church on Sunday. I want to make sure that I'm in a good place on Sunday morning to hear the Word of God and to the, receive the Word of God. You see, you don't need just the church and the world doesn't just simply need good preachers. It needs good hearers. It needs good receivers. You know, Jesus told a parable once, and he said, uh, there are different ways you can hear the gospel. There are those that hear it as, as a sower sowing seed on the side of the road, and because it's rocky and hard, the birds come immediately and take up that seed. And Jesus said, that's the kind of people, when they hear the gospel, they don't receive it. Why? Because the devil comes immediately to snatch the seed of God's word from their heart. And then he said, there are those that the seed is thrown and the, the ground is kind of shallow, but it takes root and it springs up quickly, but because it doesn't have deep roots, when the sun comes out or when persecution comes, it dies, it withers away. He said, and there's other seed that's thrown amongst the thorns and the thistles. And it takes root and it grows. But the thorns and the thistles begin to choke the seed of God's word and it doesn't flourish, it dies. And he compared the thorns and the thistles to the deceitfulness of riches, the lusts of other things, and the distractions of worldliness. He said, but then there are those that hear the message and receive it. It's like seed thrown on good soil, and they'll produce some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Now, those of you that have had any kind of training in communication theory, you know there are three components or three aspects to effective communication. There's the encoding. Uh, that's when the message begins to 
formulate to be transmitted to you. That's, and that's the second phase. There's the transmission of what's been encoded. It can come verbally, it can come by facial expressions, it can come in written form. Uh, there are many ways that it can be transmitted. But then the third level of communication theory is the decoding, the deciphering of, of the message. And that's where a lot of times it, the message gets lost in translation. And when it comes to receiving the message of Christ and the Word of God in our life, there's the encoding, right? There's the transmission of it, preaching or reading the truth of God's Word. But then there's the decoding, and that's where we need the Holy Spirit to bring illumination to our hearts and minds so that we not only hear the Word, but we receive the Word. And Cornelius was in a great spot. He was in a great place. He was getting everything ready because he was going to welcome the man of God into his home to preach the message of Christ to him and his entire household. So here's what happens. Verse 25 of Acts 10. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. Now, I'm telling you, Peter was a rock star, and Cornelius still had a lot of paganism in him. And there's a lot of paganism in our culture today, right? It's sad that one person would think another person is better than them because they're better looking, because they're smarter, because they're richer, because they're more famous. It's sad that we have so much celebrity worship in our, in our world today and in our culture today. Listen, just because someone's a great athlete or someone's a great entertainer or someone's a powerful business person or someone's a powerful politician, they're no different than you. There, there, there is no such thing in the body of Christ as celebrities. And we should never bow before another human being. They're just like you. They're just like me. We're all on this journey called life. And in the body of Christ, there are no celebrities. I don't get me wrong. I know that when you get to meet a great man or woman of God, sometimes you're a little bit intimidated by how God is using them. But we should never worship them. There's only one celebrity in the body of Christ. There's only one superstar, and what's his name? Jesus. Come on, let's give it up for Jesus. Can we give it up for him? So Peter is mortified, right? And Peter pulls him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. And so he, re he reminds Cornelius, listen, there's only one that you should worship, and that is God. Then it continues, verse 27. So they talked together, and they went inside, where many others were assembled. He had like four days, right, to prepare. And Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has, sh has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And Cornelius replied, four days ago I was praying in my house about this same time three o'clock in the afternoon and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me and he told me Cornelius your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter 
He's staying in the home of Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given to you. Now Peter is going to begin to share the gospel with Cornelius, this Gentile. Peter is dumbfounded. He can't believe where his life is at at this moment. He's thinking to himself, I'm in a Gentile home with a house filled with Gentiles. He said, this has never happened before. These people are, they're unclean. The men are uncircumcised. These are heathen people. They're impure and unclean. They're not like us Jewish people. We would never have any association with Gentiles. This is a big moment. This is a big deal for Peter to be there in that place. You know, sometimes the Lord may send you into a nightclub, not to party, but to be a light for Jesus. Don't shout me down now. He might have you work in a casino in Las Vegas, not to play the slots, but to be a witness. He might bring you into the dark regions and the dark places of this world, in the entertainment industry, in the athletic world, in the business world. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, and you're to go and you're to let your light shine. And sometimes you might be in places and you're thinking to yourself, I never would have dreamed that I would be here with these type of people. But God loves everyone the same, and these people need the gospel message just like the rest of us needed the gospel message. And thank God for those opportunities that God may have you working with a sex worker, working with tra getting women out of the sex trafficking industry. He may, he may send some of you into a brothel, not as a customer, <laughs> but as an evangelist, hallelujah. To bring the love of Jesus to those that are in that world, letting them know there's a better way and that Jesus is the way and that there is a way out. And his name is Jesus. So Peter's with these impure, unclean people. And uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, we're going to look at here in just a moment, comes out of Peter's mouth. So the first point I want to leave with you today is this. God's love is impartial. I want to talk to you about the impartial love of God. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For there is no partiality with God. He doesn't love one group of people more than he loves another group of people. He doesn't love Americans more than he does Africans. He doesn't love Africans more than he does Asians. God loves without partiality. There is no respecter of persons with God. Here's how Peter said it in Cornelius' house in uh, verse 34 of Acts 10. And Peter, having opened his mouth, said, Of a truth, I am in the process of comprehending the fact that God does not show partiality to anyone because of his looks or circumstances. The beautiful thing about God is God loves you for who you are, not for what you can do and not what you look like on the outside. So much of love in our world today is so superficial. It's based on what someone can do, and it's based purely on what that person looks like on the outside. Isn't it good to know that God doesn't look at man the way men look at, the way we look at one another? God doesn't look at the outward. God looks at the inward. 
It, it's what you look on the inside that matters to God, not what you look like on the outside. Can we thank God that we can all, and we're all beautiful in Christ? Peter talks about adorning not the outward man, but the hidden man of the heart. Inward beauty. In our society today, we place such an emphasis on external beauty. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. God loves you for who you are, not because of what you can do or not because of how you look, how tall you are or how tall you're not, what the color of your skin is or what the color of your skin isn't. You know, what sex you are, he loves men more than women. No, God is no respecter of persons. God's love is impartial. And we must learn from God how to love, not partially, but impartially. I love what C.S. Lewis said about partial love, and here's a quote. There is someone I love even though I don't approve of what he does. There is someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. You know, really all love really does begin with self-love, doesn't it? That's why a lot of people have a hard time loving in relationships because they don't love themselves. I'm not talking about loving yourself in a narcissistic way. But so many people experience self-loathing. They really loathe or they hate themselves. You have no right to hate yourself if God loves you. What gives you the right to hate yourself when God says you were fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image and likeness of God? Many times people involve themselves in all types of impure and unclean activity because they've rejected themselves and they've given themselves completely over to that lifestyle. But God has something better. Once you come to the realization that his love for you is impartial, that he loves you with no strings attached. Doesn't mean he doesn't expect for you to change and become the person he's called you to be, but he loves you with no strings attached. And we have such a distorted view of love in our culture today, don't we? It's been said before, love is easy, but relationships are hard. That's why people talk about a one-night stand and they think, oh, it's so great, it's so wonderful. Because, you know, love or the feeling of love is easy, but relationships are hard. Marrying somebody and staying happily married 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, it's going to take work. Because love is easy, but relationships are hard. God doesn't simply love us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And when we enter into a relationship with him, he's made a promise to you that he'll never leave you He'll never forsake you, that he'll be with you always because God is no respecter of persons and God doesn't love us in a partial way. You know, it's interesting, the word favoritism that, that Peter uses here in Acts 10.34, it's only used once in the entire Bible in this particular verse. Now, synonyms of that same word are used in Romans 2.12 and Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 3.25, James 2.1. But it's only used here in the word basically means that God does not look at the outward but the inward. He doesn't discriminate based on face or based on race. People in our society that are the most loved, it's based on what they can do. It's based on what they look like. But God's love for us is unconditional. You know, really there are three types of love. The first is conditional love. Now, 
that, that phrase, conditional love, is oxymoronic. You see, you can't have, you can have conditions or you can have love, but you can't have conditional love. One negates the other. When we talk about war and the ending of a war, we talk about conditional surrender. Uh, for those of you that work in the penal system, for those that are going to be paroled, we talk about conditions for parole. Well, when it comes to love and marriage, how many know there are no conditions when it comes to love? How many know that we are to love one another with no strings attached? It's called unconditional love. And the way God loves you and the way God loves me, His love for us is not based on conditions. It's not based on whether you can earn it or not. It's not based on whether you deserve it or not. It's not based on whether you merit or not. His love for you is complete, and we should all be thankful for that. The second type of love is controlling love. I hope you're not in a marriage where you're experiencing controlling love. I hope you weren't raised in a home that the love was controlling. And a mother or a father would give or withhold that love in a way to control you. You know, God doesn't love us in a controlling way. Because love is only love when it's free not to love. And God places His value on freedom greater than His value of love. And that's why when He created Adam and Eve, He didn't create us like pre-programmed Robotrons, programmed to love Him and obey Him. He gave us free will. They were in the garden, and they could love Him or hate Him. They could obey Him or disobey Him. They had free reign of the entire garden, and He could eat of every tree in the garden except for one, the one that was in the midst of the garden. God wanted them to exercise free will. Freely you've come into this relationship, and freely you could leave this relationship. He never wants us to leave that relationship with Him. But you came in by an act of your will. You can walk away by an act of your will. God loves you enough to let you go if you don't want to stay. Even throughout eternity. I'm reading in the book of Revelation in my devotion, reading through Scripture. And when you get to the glorious celestial city, ultimately after the millennial reign of Christ, when heaven comes down to the earth and there's this glorious city, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high, the new Jerusalem on planet earth, and we will live with God in ceaseless ages forever and ever and ever. But the Bible, come on, let's thank the Lord for that, amen. The Bible says the gates of the city will never be shut. You don't have to stay if you don't want to stay. I don't know where any dummy would want to go other than that place. But I guess just around the corner is still the lake of fire. But I don't want to go there. Turn to your neighbor and say, you don't want to go there, <laughs> you know. But God never controls us. I hope you don't try to control your kids. I hope you don't try to control the people that you love. The third type of love is complete love. Now listen to me very carefully. We, we don't love our kids equally. You, you might think you do, but come on, be honest. You favor one above the other. I would never admit that, Pastor Carl. But you do in your heart of hearts. You know you do. Now, we have to guard against that. Listen, but really, we don't love our children equally because there's nothing as unequal as the equal treatment of unequals. Now, listen to me carefully. I'm not advocating favoritism. Listen to me. We don't love our children equally, but we love them completely. Now, why don't we love our children equally? 
because all our kids have a different love language. What works, one, what, what works well for one may not work well for the other. You might have one child, their love language are words of affirmation. So if you try acts of service with them, they're like, I don't need that, I don't want that, I can do that myself, you, you know, you're crowding my space, give me my space, I'm independent, blah, blah, blah. Because you think, well, you're acts of service, they need that, no, they need words of affirmation. So they need constant text messages, you're the best, you're awesome, you're good looking, you're smart, you're beautiful, you're all those things, plus, plus, plus. And they're like beaming, beaming, because that's their love language. Others, their love language might be touch. Right? So like our oldest son, Nathan, his, one of his love languages is touch. Man, I could hug on him and hold him, you know, I could kiss him on the cheek all day long. He's like totally cool with that. But our youngest son, his love language isn't is touch. So the other night, I'm like, okay, you know, I, gotta, I, I, just, I wanna stay connected. You know, he's a grown man, 22, has more facial hair than I could ever grow. So I went to him and said, good night, son. He goes, good night, dad. And we went to hug. You know, he's like, oh, this muscle bag guy, you know. Good night, son. And then I kissed him real quick. And he pulled back and he goes, that was awkward. <laughs> now, there was a time when he was little, I would kiss him every night. And they would wait for daddy's kisses. But he's a grown man. He don't need a kiss from his dad. But I need to kiss him. That's my love language. I said, I know, but it wasn't a wet one. And it was on the cheek, so it's all good. So we love, we love our kids completely. And God loves us completely, but he doesn't love us the same. Hello? God loves us completely, but he doesn't love us the same. Sometimes someone may get seemingly treated better than you, but that's okay because you're content and secure that God loves you. Listen, Moses got to speak to God face to face. So the other day I said, come on, God, what's up with that? When are you going to visit me face to face? He got to see your, your hinder parts. That's old King James. <laughs> it means the backside of God. Like, when can I see your backside? I'm like, you know, God, you, you did special things, you know. You, you let Cornelius, an angel, visited him. So I literally, last couple of weeks, I'm like, okay, God, angel, come. Go ahead, send an angel. You know. I have a question about what's going to happen in North Korea, you know, or what's going to happen over here, whatever. I haven't had an angel. Does that mean that God loves Cornelius more than he loves me? No. He loves us all completely, but he doesn't treat us all the same. How many know you can rejoice if God is blessing someone differently than he's blessing you? You can rejoice if someone is seemingly being treated better by the Father than you feel that you're being treated right now because God's no respecter of persons. He loves us all the same. Your turn is coming based on the way God knows you need to be loved. Amen. So we can accept the fact. Even Jesus would treat Peter, James, and John differently than he taught when he would treat the other apostles. Peter, James, and John got to go with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus transform before their very eyes. Not the other apostles. Peter, James, and John would be witnesses to miracles that the other apostles would not be witness to. So there's nothing as equal as the unequal treatment of equals. So it's not as though we're talking about everybody needs to be treated equal. And we have this, this wrong understanding of equality in America. Equality. There is no such thing as equality. Some of you are just flat out better looking than the rest of us. We applaud your good looks. God bless you. You're awesome. We wonder what happened to us, but that's okay. And, and don't be prideful either. Some of you are just smarter than me, okay? Some of you are taller than me. Some of you are better athletes than me. I'd never admit that but yeah, we're not, all, we're not equal. 
but we're all loved completely the way we need to be loved based on how God made us and how God designed us. The second thought is, it's good to do some good. The next thing Peter says in, in verse 38, he says, it's good to do how, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So Peter had to get past the fact that, wow, you know, God accepts those who fear him and, and do what's good in verse 35. And, and in verse 36, he says, this message of the good news is for the people of Israel. But he was realizing that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. And in verse 37, he says, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching the message of baptism. And he's saying, I'm realizing now that the message of Jesus is not just for the Jews. It's now for the Gentile world. And he said, here's Jesus. He went about doing good. You know, we, in a world filled with so much bad, we need to follow the example of Jesus. We need to go about doing good. Sometimes our idea of good is, well, good's the enemy of great, and good's really not that good. But God's idea of good far exceeds our idea of great. And when God says something is good, that all things work together for the good, it's the Greek word agathos. It's a beautiful Greek word. It's almost comparable to the word, Greek word agape for the word love. And what we have to understand is that Jesus went about doing good. And what was good? What was good for Jesus? Healing those that were oppressed of the devil. You know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. He's still going about doing good, healing those who are oppressed of the devil. That's why here at church, we, we have a time of prayer and ministry time. Because we believe that this Jesus is among us. He loves us. And he wants to lift us, heal us, and restore us. And then finally, uh, in verse 39 through 43, Peter goes on and he says, And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us, he commanded us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name and the final point that I want to leave you with it's not the gospel if it doesn't include four things it's not the gospel unless it includes these four things you know the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1 9 I will say it again if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one you welcome let God's curse fall upon him this is serious stuff Peter just presented the gospel to Cornelius and his entire household. And it's only the gospel if it includes four things. Number one, he mentioned the physical, the literal physical death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There are many cults and many false religions that deny the physical death of Jesus. They say things like, it wasn't real. It, he died a spiritual death. No, my friend, Jesus Christ was a real person, God in human form, a real human being without sin 
and he died a real death on an agony, a death of agony on that cross for you and me. The second thing that the gospel must include is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many cults and false religions deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus not only died physically, but he was gloriously raised to life and he appeared in a physical body of, of flesh and bone. He even told one of his disciples, Thomas, Thomas, you said you wouldn't believe unless you saw, and you wouldn't believe unless you touched the scars. He said, here they are. Touch the scar in my side, in my hands, on my feet. He said, Lord, Lord, Lord God, I believe, I believe. He said, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are they who believe who have not seen. So you must believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number three, you must believe in the future coming of Jesus Christ and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. As I mentioned before, I'm reading in the book of Revelation. It's an eye-opening book. It's a frightening book. Because even though God is pouring out his wrath on, on mankind, man is still rebellious and resistant and still shakes their fist in the face of God, denying God his rightful place in their lives. While they're being judged, their hearts are so hardened by sin not everyone will receive the gospel message, unfortunately. And those that don't will be judged. The living and those that have died will stand before the judge of all the earth. And finally, you must believe in forgiveness and eternal life that's only found in Jesus Christ. When Cornelius and everyone in his household heard this four-point gospel message, and congratulations to Peter, he preached the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ to this home filled with Gentiles. He held nothing back. God bless Peter. You know what happened next? It shocked Peter and the Jewish companions that were with him. Before that last syllable came out of his mouth, the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his entire household. They were all saved. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they all begin to speak in other tongues and magnify God, and Peter's jaw hit the ground. The Jewish brethren with them, their jaws hit the ground. They looked at one another in amazement, and they said, what in the world is this? The same Holy Spirit that came on us has just fell upon them. Whoa, there's not two Gospels. There's not two Saviors. There's not two Holy Spirits, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's one Lord, one God, one Savior, one baptism, one heaven, and all who put their faith and trust in Jesus are loved and received by God. What an amazing story. So the encoding is what was shared today. The transmission was through the vehicle of preaching. The decoding is now up to you. How do you take this message and interpret it in your own heart and life? How do you decipher it? How do you apply it? I hope if you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Christ, that you will do that. I hope and I pray that if you're listening to this message and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, that right here, right now, you'll open up your heart, even as Cornelius and his household did, and receive the gift of eternal life through God's precious, only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like every head bowed, every eye closed. And if that's you, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. The Word of God says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. And thank you, God, for loving me impartially. With no strings attached, I receive that love and I return that love back to you this day in Jesus name. Amen. Can we thank God together church family?